This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. This is a summer science series, and it's a chance for us to play some other podcasts for you. Today we have two ocean-focused stories. The first is produced by Xanthi Smith, a student from the Centre for Science and Society at Teheranawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. Xanthi transports us into an underwater soundscape and investigates noise pollution, how human-produced sounds are affecting the wildlife that lives beneath the waves. Whenever I take a walk along the Wellington waterfront, I find myself tuning into its sounds. You get this hum of noise knitting together. It's made up of these squawking seagulls and that iconic howling wind. There's also an undertone of busyness as commuters make their way towards the city centre. After a while, this noise fades into the background. If you live in a city, you've likely experienced this shift the way that city sounds become a backing track after a while. But for wildlife living alongside the clamour, sounds don't fade. In fact, for Wellington Harbour's ecological locals, the racket is getting louder. Invasive sounds disrupt animals. That constant din of human activity creates a layer of overwhelming sound. There's the noise created by the docks and things like boat engines and pedestrian movement. This layer of noise weaves together and makes a net that smothers natural noise. This is a major problem for marine life because sea creatures depend on clear sound. A healthy marine ecosystem is filled with the sound of wildlife. But in Wellington Harbour, the seascape sounds something more like this. Thinking about this issue made me wonder what impact the noise is having on Wellington sea life. To understand more, I got in contact with Dr. Deanna Clement and Dr. Matt Pine. Dr. Clement is an expert in marine mammals and Dr. Pine on the sound that impacts them. I spoke with them both over Zoom. My name's Deanna Clement. I'm a marine mammal ecologist. I come from the landlocked, very flat area of America known as the Midwest. And growing up, I was always interested in animal behavior. And everyone said, if you're interested in behavior, you have to go study the great apes or you go to study dolphins. And I think the one that was most attractive to me was dolphins. But I had some amazing mentors that got in there and helped me sort out how in the world someone from, you know, the University of Nebraska could work their way to the ocean to become a marine biologist. This advertisement came across on one of the marine mammal channels that said, come study 
the endangered Hectostophan in New Zealand. And I went, well, I always wanted to go to New Zealand. <laughs> and lo and behold, they offered me the chance to come to Otago. But it was all observational at that point. Everyone still did everything based from a boat. And you were watching the animal come to the surface, quickly writing down as much information as you could, and then waiting for it to come to the surface the next time. Trying to interpret what it was doing, if it was healthy, how many there were, if it was a boy or girl, you know, all these things in these couple seconds that they come to the surface. What we've come to learn is that the ocean's acoustically rich. So their perception of their environment is more sound driven. So what they're hearing, feeling, seeing. So we've decided we need to start studying them from that viewpoint. My name is Matt Pine. I'm a principal scientist at Styles Group Acoustics, which is a private consultancy based out of Auckland. As well as that, I also do academic research with the University of Victoria as a research affiliate. Research is all about underwater noise, really, what the effects of underwater noise are on sensitive marine life. Marine acoustics is incredibly broad that goes from engineering all the way to biology. My focus is on the biology side. Animals under the sea have evolved to hone in on sound. So you've got chemical cues like smells, you've got vision, light, and then of course you've got acoustic sound. And of those sort of three far reaching kind of cues sound is the one that's omnidirectional and can transmit huge amounts of information in all directions and because of the speed of sound underwater um, roughly 1500 meters a second can span huge distances which is the biggest difference to sound in air which you're all familiar with pretty much every animal under the sea has evolved to detect sound in some way shape or form and they use them to communicate they talk to one another they use sound to detect presence of predators. You name it, it, some component of it will involve sound. So underwater acoustics is basically listening to the sound being used by these animals to understand their habitat and to see their world. This is the new way of being with them without disturbing them, but being able to just listen in on what they're doing. So we collect echolocation clicks. So the biosonar that the animals are using to explore their world whistles. In the case of communication, they often whistle to each other and they have little signatures and little ways of making themselves heard. And then also songs. So everyone hears about the humpback, the haunting humpback songs and how they sing these songs to attract their mates. So there's all these sound-driven ways that free mammals understand their world and each other. It's pretty universal from invertebrates, the tiniest of things like crustacean larvae, all the way up to the blue whale. The ocean is a sonic world. It's a very noisy place. The sounds of the reef and all the fish eating and the urchins scraping, wind and waves, whales singing, dolphins clicking and whistling, it's quite noisy. You know, there's so many fish that make noise and invertebrate, snapping shrimp, all these things that make noise. Reefs are incredibly noisy. If you go snorkeling, people always go, what's all that noise? You know, what's in it's That's the ocean. You know, it is noisy. We just think of it as a silence. And so they've all adapted and evolved to tune into that acoustic world. And what my work is primarily interested in is how the sounds that we produce underwater impacts that humans are visual animals so we use our sight as our primary and the other senses are sort of secondary so if you cross a road you look left and right rather than listening it's always been quite interesting for me personally because there's a lot of rules around noise pollution in our world 
So we have noise rules in the district plans and we have loads of stories of having very noisy neighbours or very noisy bars and concerts. And people get very upset being exposed to loud noises when they're trying to do certain activities like sleep or eat or anything like that. Given that we're so sort of attuned to our acoustic environment in, a, in an urban setting, it's the same for the whales and the dolphins and the fish and even the invertebrates. So the disconnect, I suppose, between us living in the urban world and then thinking what it's like for whales with thousands and thousands of boats going around. Shipping's one of the main ones. The propeller going through water makes a cavitation, you know, where it's making bubbles and it's making noise. And the big ships, I don't think anyone realizes how much activity is out there until you go and look on the maps where they track these ships and you just see lines that are just, oh, they're so dense. And that's constant noise for these marine mammals because it's low frequency. Low frequency travels really long ways. Where these animals make their noises is where those shipping noises are. We disconnected these populations. You know, are they only getting snippets like you would across a freeway when it tends to be a little bit quiet? You know, it's that kind of analogy is we get used to the noise, but when it stops, then, you know, potentially, oh, hey, Fred, oh, I haven't heard from you. Do we get that happening or have they just gone too hard? So, you know, hearing is you can have chronic damage, you can have acute. Acute's like your dad. He's been at the concert too many times when he was in his youth, right? Or he wore the old headsets, the Walkmans, and they were too loud. And now he's done damage in there. That's acute that can build up over time. Chronic is more like you go to the concert and your ears are buzzing the next day. Shipping is the main target is the chronic noise source because it's just so many ships. The ship is transitory as an individual, but as a collective, it's pretty chronic like one ship's past there's always another ship that's coming up so the ships essentially lose that transitory nature there are companies overseas that are working on trying to get quieter engines it's just with diesel and the power behind it it's a hard thing there's never been the impetus to try but if one of the major shipping countries actually catch on and ended up putting in requirements then all of a sudden our engines would get amazing but it will take a big international change to get boats worldwide to be more quiet. Talking about minimising acoustic pollution on an international scale led me back to a more local mindset. The drive to reform shipping has to start somewhere, and I wondered what was being done here in Wellington to dampen the issue of acoustic pollution. This line of thinking led me to the docks. Commuter ferries cross Wellington Harbour every day, and recently the introduction of a new ferry has made waves. Ikariri is a fully electric passenger vessel, it's quieter propulsion might just be enough to din vessel noise into Whanganui Atara. I headed down to the harbour to take a trip on the ferry in an attempt to hear the difference between the new one and the old one. As I walked up to the dock, Ikariri stood out from a distance. It's bright blue and noticeably newer than the other vessels. It was launched in 2020 and was constructed here in Wellington by the Electric Boat Building Company. When I first stepped on board, I didn't hear anything strange. In fact, I thought the engine wasn't turned on at all. But if you listen closely to this audio, you might just hear it. It's like a low hum. Contrary to my first thoughts, Ikariri was powered on the entire time while I was there. After the ferry had left the dock, I had a chat to Mark, who was a skipper on board that day. He told me some stories about his experiences with the new electric ferry and how it differed from the old gasoline version. So like today, I work on both vessels, uh, both the diesel and the electric ferry uh, throughout the course of one day. Uh, it's hugely noticeable, the, 
the sound, especially when you go from one to the other in the space of five minutes. You can notice that immediately. First time I drove this boat, my biggest issue to do with sound was actually not being able to hear the engines anymore. So when I park in the dark, uh, I tend to listen to the engine noise and adjust the throttles accordingly based upon my understanding of what the rev range is for that noise. Whereas these boats, there's no motor sound, so I've, I found a big difference. There's our noise, we're about to go to full speed, we'll Ooh. see how noisy it'll be. Oh, I see. So currently we're at full speed, we're drawing 280 kilowatts from the battery at 11,000 or 1100 revolutions in the propeller. Battery consumption will be going down very fast. Our speed will go up to probably around 21 knots. Yep. And this is the max noise that the boat could ever produce. If we drove the other boat at 1100 RPM, it'd be quite noisy. Did see a pod of dolphin in this boat about two months ago. Mm. It's coming back from Soames and at the north of Evans Bay around here. I see a bunch of dolphins sitting in the entrance to Evans Bay. So I slow down and I drive over on this and uh, of my eight years working at the company, seven years working at the company, uh, the dolphins had never followed the boat as long. They followed all the way from Evans Bay all the way into Lenton Harbour until I went into the booth. Amazing, into the city basically. Yep, pretty much into the city. Mm. And often that would have been about seven, eight minutes going at eight knots, 16k. Often we lose the interest of the dolphins after 90 seconds. Because they were interested never experienced this before. Possibly they come here all the time so they didn't know it was something different. Or it was just a sound that they never heard. A quieter boat is a lot nicer. Communication is easier. Talking to crew, talking to passengers. Uh, ergonomically it's nicer. After spending some time on the electric ferry, I couldn't help but feel optimistic about the future of acoustic pollution in Wellington Harbour, at least when it comes to sound sources like passenger transport. As Mark said, the comfort of travelling on a quieter boat when combined with its ecological and energy benefits give innovations like the Ikarede an undeniable appeal. Plans are underway for a second electric ferry to join the Wellington fleet sometime in the future. To me, that sounds like a positive change for Wellington sea life. Before I said goodbye to each of my scientist interviewees, I asked them a closing question about the future of marine sound. Do you think the ocean 50 years from now will be quieter or is it going to become louder? I would naturally like to think it's definitely going to be quieter because it can't be louder. <laughs> we'll be in big trouble if it goes louder. So the former is sort of the only option. And it's recognised, like it is genuinely accepted now that noise pollution is a big issue in the ocean and with regulatory bodies around the world acknowledging it. And it's, you know, starting now in New Zealand, in 50 years time, the ocean, I expect, will be quieter with all of that. And with all the electric boats and if we go on that and the general drive of getting away from fossil fuel, that will also go a long way. It's like climate change. If, if we just keep on barreling in the direction we're going, it's not going to end well. So it requires, you know, we have to change it. We have to make it make it quieter, yeah. I would like to think it's going to be quieter because if we do get off oil and gas in terms of, of noise that's happening in particular locations, and often those are where the whales are, you know, because they're cold water, they're deep, those areas. I would love to think that we're going to get more efficient. I don't know if it'll be the air or the land that drives it, but 
those areas have to get more efficient from the climate change viewpoint. And hopefully that will trickle down to shipping and being on the water as well. So I just feel like those cleaning up the way that we make engines in whatever form has to have a good effect on the ocean at some point in time. <laughs> Seems really close all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, but then again, you know, 2000 to now, I mean, that's only 20 years. Look at how quickly this technology for studying things has changed and things that we've done. But yeah, what a, what a place, you know, that you'll have the whales going, hey, I remember a time when, you know, I couldn't even hear <laughs> Frank over here talking to me, but now <laughs> can't get a place to myself, you know, you know, wouldn't that be amazing and wonderful. That was Xanthi Smith from Victoria University's Centre for Science and Society, and she was speaking to Dr. Matt Pine, Dr. Dana Clement, and Mark McCormack. The podcast was produced and edited by Xanthi Smith, with additional sound engineering from William Saunders. Our next story comes from the RNZ podcast Voices, produced by Cadenbury Rag and Kumar. In this episode, Cadenbury meets Dr. Norman Rag, a Nelson-based scientist researching shellfish physiology. We also meet Simon, one of the power Norman is studying. Can I ask you if you're familiar with powers or abalone? Um, well, I'm vaguely familiar with them. I've eaten them once in my life. Okay, well, don't say That's that too loudly. That's probably my, my limited interaction with them. I've seen them on the rocks a few times. Yep, perfect. Um, what we have is Simon and his friends. Kia ora, this is Voices and I'm Kadambri Raghukumar. I'm with scientist Norman Rag today and Simon is a power, an abalone here in the lab at Cawthron Institute, Nelson. What you hear around us is seawater being pumped into the lab into tubs containing shellfish. So to visit them, um, we just have to go through a, a water bath here. This is just a little bit of decontaminant for any residual dirt that might be on your boots. Mm-hmm. Norman's best known for developing a heart monitor for abalone to help keep track of their stress receptors. As water temperatures rise and directly affect fisheries and the ecology here in New Zealand, research that scientists like Norman do gets even more important. More on that soon, but first, how did someone from South London who's half Argentinian, raised in the Middle East, end up in South Island, New Zealand to work on power after a research stint in Israel? I was uh, studying and working with a Kiwi and every, every few weeks would get a postcard from the Taranaki. Mm-hmm. Same image every time. Volcano, snow, trees, green, sheep. Always the same. And if you're working in the desert, that's incredibly attractive and seductive. This is a long time ago, last century, and <laughs> late 1990s. My, own research responsibilities uh, were to look at abalone power and their association with the seaweed that they eat. I had had more than enough time living in the desert and um, my wife who was with me really um, was missing a bit of green and cold and rain. I started to think, well, maybe New Zealand Maybe New Zealand's an interesting place. And I talked to my wife and she says, oh, yes, yes, always wanted to go to New Zealand. 
Um, she works with horses and trains horses. And yes, wonderful, wonderful horse industry in New Zealand. Let's look more carefully. Things like the internet and email were only really just becoming mainstream. So tapping into those emerging technologies. Mm -hmm. I was an early adopter <laughs> and uh, managed to make contact with a professor in the University of Canterbury um, who turned into an, an extraordinary advocate, Harry Taylor, um, really, really wonderful invertebrate marine biologist and physiologist who had also shared this passion for these abalonian power and essentially created an opportunity for me to come to New Zealand studying these amazing animals, the Blackfoot Pawa, exactly 25 years ago, Matariki this year. I became fascinated, almost obsessed. Well, let's say obsessed. We're heading back to Simon and his friends. So what you'll see here, for example, we have a room dedicated to Pacific oysters. In fact, we've got two because that's a big research focus for us. We have other rooms dedicated to breeding mussels, green shell mussels that are being matured so that they can be used for breeding and also for gooey duck clams. What we're going to do is just wander down to the end here okay. and meet the powers. Now, this guy here, you'll see he's got a different coloured shell mm -hmm. and He's somewhat precious, so I'm not going to remove him. Um, but What makes Simon so precious? What you might be able to do, we're looking through a slightly translucent tank, and you might see that he's got... A, these are Blackfoot power, so unsurprisingly, they have a black foot. What Simon has, in addition to a naturally black foot, is this pale tissue surrounding, which is what the power divers would call the frill. And it seems that about one in a million uh, abalone or blackfoot power show uh, this rare mutation. Simon's got a different pigment. It doesn't appear as black and melanin rich as his friends. It's more of a lighter, browner shade. These days, Norman has been focused on the physiology of this sort of mutation in essentially what's a living fossil. Powers have that distinctive line of holes, which immediately gives you this clue that you might be looking at something rather ancient and different. Mm. And if you get underneath the holes, you get underneath the shell and you really start to look at the biology of the animal itself, very, very different, very, very complex. This tiny little heart has to pump blood, which represents about half of all of the animal's tissues. So they're actually little blood sacs. So you, you start to look at these basic bits of information and then look at the animal and say, this is, this is an extraordinary convergence of things that have to all work in unison to make this an effective animal, not just a curiosity over evolutionary time, but something that was actually so effective and remains so effective in the role that it fulfills and the way it survives that it's still successful today in the modern world. But still not 100% completely resilient to climate change. Norman's ECG for the power to monitor how they respond to stressors was developed in 2017, and it's still really relevant. 
The data it provides can give fisheries some pretty crucial insights on how shellfish react to the increase in carbon dioxide levels and temperature and adapt their farming practices accordingly. So it's less about the development of new technology and this is more about the transfer of medical physiology technology that we're familiar with for humans into the rather challenging space of being able to apply them to shellfish. My original work looked at trying to transfer these approaches to apply them to powers, a technique we were using for monitoring heart activity. Uh, being able to use those kinds of tools to characterize how these animals are going to be changing. So these days, um, it's, it's good for a marine invertebrate physiologist like me. There's a lot of interest in my science, but uh, these are challenging times. And being able to bring these, these more detailed physiological assessment tools to really understand these climate sensitivities, that's, that's becoming core to my research these days. Because these animals live in shallow coastal areas, they're particularly vulnerable and influenced by coastal usage. And now, in the last few years, we're seeing very rapid changes in the coastal climate. But also the fact that they eat seaweed and that the seaweed is itself very influenced by the coastal environment and the temperature of the seawater means that they get, in the simplest sense, that double whammy of a direct effect on their own physiology and their food source and the habitat that develops around their food source. So we need to be very tuned into this. Working on power in New Zealand is the end result of a pretty wide range of experiences Norman's had across the world. And in many ways, his work is also now informed by the importance of this Taonga species from indigenous points of view as well. I had spent a, a small amount of time on the west coast of the United States uh, being introduced to the abalone species that are native there. And so from from British Columbia all the way down to California, you have stories that is reinforced over generations and by archaeologists digging through middens and historical records that there is this keen cultural alignment with abalone and here its power as being something more. I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say that there's nowhere that comes close to having uh, an, an appreciation or an awareness that rivals the perspective of, of New Zealand Māori, where clearly power are deeply embedded within the culture. And for all of us to really understand the, the idea of a Taonga species and what it really means to have something that's not only precious and treasured, but something that is um, there in a, in a way... Um, it was introduced to me recently as, as we should regard an older relative, someone who's been around a lot longer than us and has therefore a lot more to teach us. That was Kadambri Ragankumar speaking to Dr. Norman Rag for an episode of Voices, an RNZ podcast that tells the story of New Zealanders born overseas. 
You can listen to all of the Voices episodes by following the show on your favorite podcast app, or you can find it on the RNZ website. Voices is an RNZ podcast produced and hosted by Kadambri Raghu Kumar with sound engineering for this story by Jeremy Ansel. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. Thanks so much for following the Our Changing World podcast and for listening each week. Remember, if you ever want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter where we are at RNZ Science or email the show ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai, po wiki.